Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-358 of the Run Run Live podcast. How are you doing? We made it to February. February. We're on the other side of the equinox. The days are getting longer. Yeah, my training is going great. I've been eating clean, and I'm ramping up my miles for Boston. I did a 120 step-up run on Sunday with a full 50 minutes of tempo at faster than race pace. I did a hilly 10.5 Tuesday, another hilly almost 11 miles on Wednesday. And at that, I'm close to 30 miles, and I've got three more workouts this week. That's good volume for me, and my legs feel pretty good. I'm recovering well. Nothing hurt. Right on plan. So today... We have an interesting interview with a handsome, intelligent, compelling man. No, not really. Just kidding. As I threatened, I had my baby, future neurosurgeon Teresa, ask me questions that you sent in. And what can I say? They can't all be great shows. Come on. We're at episode 358, for heaven's sake. You know, I get a gimme now and then. <laughs> In part one, I'll focus on how to execute a step-up run. In section two, I'll share a piece that I wrote this week on how to tell your story on LinkedIn for my business stuff. And other than that, it's Friday night and I owe you a show. (laughs) So let's progress with alacrity before we freeze in this February evening. I will remind you that the Run Run Live podcast is ad-free and listener-supported. And we have a membership option where you can become a member. And as a special thank you, you will get access to members-only audio. So you can sign up for that. And also remind you that I am still collecting for Team Hoyt for the Boston Marathon 2017. would appreciate any help you can give. And the fundraiser is on uh, fundraiser. <laughs> fundraiser is on CrowdRise at uh, CrowdRise.com forward slash Team Hoyt Boston 2017 forward slash fundraiser forward slash Christopher Russell. No spaces. Last week, one of my runs was a 30-30 workout. 
And that's, it's a bit of a speed workout. It's not a hard speed workout, but it's a speed workout. What you do is you warm up and then you run 30 seconds hard at 15 to 20 seconds faster than your 5K pace. Then you recover for 30 seconds and repeat, rinse and repeat. And you do that 20 times, then you cool down. And it's a type of workout that you should really do on the track, but my local tracks are all under snow right now, so I did it in my neighborhood. And my neighborhood is almost exactly a 1K loop. It's sort of a slightly inclined 1K oval with maybe 50 feet of rise on one end. And it's good for this type of workout. It's almost like a track. It's like a 1K track almost. And my neighbors have long gotten over the fact that I'm that guy So no issues there. And there's a um, Montessori school at the end of my road. So I run past these kids playing in the playground when I do this loop. And since I was doing it a bunch of times, I ran by them every four to five minutes. (laughs) I got out at lunch to get some sun, so they were out playing in the snow. And these are little kids, right? Little kids. Elementary school kind of kids. And they were playing around and over the remains of some sort of snow fort. We got this weird ice, rain, snow freeze uh, last week that makes for some sturdy, crunchy snow. So there were some, some snow fort artifacts there, some ruins. And I got these little windows of precocious organizational behavior as I ran by each time, like little flashes. And the first time I passed... They were trying to stop someone from destroying the snow fort. There was a party that was actively pro-destruction and another party that didn't really want them to do that and a couple of moderators trying to find a middle ground. And then the next time I went by, they had figured out some way to jump off or slide off the fort remains and now they were working out the rules for doing so. So a lot of debate on the proper jumping and sliding protocols. And then the next time I went by, they were all happily taking turns doing whatever it was they decided was the funnest thing to do. But since apparently only one person at a time could do it, the moderators were now verbally enforcing whose turn it was and how long they could go. So there you go. No adults involved, just a gang of little kids out on a snow fort, and they self-organized to keep things moving along. Made me think about the nature of humans and how we are much stronger together than apart. And when we can work it out and find a way to move forward, everybody wins. Maybe we could promote these kids up to run the world, right? (laughs) On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Anatomy of a Step-Up Run, Part 2. I've been getting into the second phase of my training for Boston, and this means higher quality workouts and more intensity. And my coach loves step-up runs. What's a step-up run? It's a race-specific form of tempo training. So you warm up, and then you step up to increasing levels of difficulty throughout the course of the run. You can do these by pace or by effort level. I do both, although I find effort level, as measured by heart rate zone, is more accurate and a better predictor for me. But there's an obvious correlation between effort level and pace, and you can get the same quality workout either way. 
whatever you're more comfortable with. Let's look at some of the tactical execution points for one of these runs. What's it feel like? What do you do? How do you manage it? For this example, I'll use a hour and 20 step up. So that consists of a 20-minute warm-up. In this case, you can split it up different ways. But in this case, we'll say it's a 20-minute warm-up, 20 minutes in high zone 2, 20 minutes in zone 3, 10 minutes in zone 4, and a 10-minute warm-down. So this is a hard workout. You need to have a good base to execute this kind of run. It's not really a beginner workout. I mean, you could do the same thing with a shorter distance, just chunk it up, say a 30-minute run the same way, and you could get some benefit out of it. But for me, training for the marathon, this is a good race-specific tempo run. It forces you to run at specific paces or effort levels that you may use in your target race. And it forces you to backload the effort and close hard like you want to in a race. The trick to a step up is spreading the effort out over the course of the workout so that you don't have to bail out before you finish. You want to be able to finish hard. And when you finish that last hard step up, you should be out of gas and you should be totally spent when you go into your cool down. So let's take this example one chunk at a time. First, the warm-up. I usually like a nice long 20-minute warm-up at my age, especially when it's cold out. At this point in my life, my heart rate takes around 15 minutes to settle down. And I don't even look at my heart rate in the warm-up. I just run super easy with good form, and I let my legs and my body warm up. So then as you enter that first step, In my example, a high zone two effort, you want to ease into it. Make sure your form is tight and just increase your turnover a little bit. Short, quick, light strides. The common mistake here is to jump into that first step and then overshoot the target effort level. Don't jump into it. Ease into it. Slowly bring your cadence up until your heart rate is where you want it. At a high zone two, for me, that's going to be five to 10 seconds slower than my marathon race pace. It's not that hard of an effort, but it takes discipline to keep your form clean as you ratchet up the effort. Your tendency is to lose focus and let your form slip. And you can't do that in a step up because it wastes energy. You keep a nice clean form and you conserve that energy because there's other steps coming. Now, as you ease into the second step in this example, it starts to get a bit hard. And for me, a mid-zone three would be five to ten seconds faster than my marathon pace. Again, you ease into the step by increasing your turnover. Don't stretch out your stride. Churn your legs faster and keep your form tight. You have to hold this effort level for 20 minutes in this case, and you have another step coming. So you don't want to jump into it and overshoot. If you go at it too hard, you'll go anaerobic and you'll have to take a break to recover. Trust me, I know this from experience. It's really an exercise in controlled effort. You're working hard, but you're right on the edge of racing. And it takes discipline to hold your effort on this edge. You control your effort with your turnover. And around my house, it's all rolling hills. I do these out on the road. And the way you manage the hills is by maintaining that turnover, 
keep churning those legs at the same rate, and your speed will adjust itself on the hills, it's okay. You're not supposed to have the same pace up and downhill and on the flats. Hold the effort level steady, and the pace will average out. And now the fun part. You're an hour into this run. You've been maintaining a fairly hard effort level for at least 40 minutes, and now you're going to ask your body to close for 10 minutes in zone 4. And for me, this would be about 15 to 20 seconds faster than my marathon pace. And again, you ease into it by picking up that turnover. But to get to this kind of effort, this kind of pace, I also find that I have to stretch out my stride a little bit too. You maintain that good form, but there's a bit more foot plant and drive in the turnover and maybe a bit more hang time in the stride. This is close to a 10K pace for me. It's a lot of work. Surprisingly, I find this part of the step up psychologically the easiest because I can smell the finish line. And honestly, my form does start to get a bit ragged at times, but when it does, I just reel it in and I focus on the turnover. Breathing is super important in that last step as well. You force a couple of long, big, deep breaths and blow them out, and that can really help you relax. And that's it. You just hold on until you hit that cool down, and then feel free to collapse and stagger a bit and jog home. You can see how this is excellent race-specific training. It teaches you pace and effort discipline. It forces you to close hard on tired legs. It lets you practice being race-type focused for a good chunk of time. All good things that you need in a race. So remember, ease into the steps, keep your form discipline, increase effort and pace with turnover, and good luck. Enjoy your step-ups. And now for today's featured interview. Go. We're recording. So it's me, Chris, and uh, and Teresa. We're in Teresa's room here. Hello. We're recording on the surround sound. I just ran 11 miles, and it's 28 degrees out. But it's not snowing. It was a beautiful night. There's snow on the ground. Yeah, but I note to self, check the headlamp batteries. I was a bit of a weak bulb. Had to. Uh, the roads are a little rough around here there when you can't see. Lights. Yeah, there's no street lights. Because I go out. I ran over to uh, North North Acton Center. That long loop, the same kind of the same loop they do for the uh, triathlon. But uh, yeah, so anyhow, it's good. That's uh, 22 miles in two days for me. So my Boston training is ramping up. Go ahead. You're going to interview me. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Teresa. All right. Very good. <laughs> um, so, yes, here are some questions from your fans. <laughs> fans. No, I call them my friends. <laughs> from your. Uh, Stalkers, sycophants, no. You're, what are they called, subscribers. Yeah, some are. Yeah, some are. <laughs> um, from So it's very late at night. You said to see Teresa and I are both wrecked. We've been working all day. I want to go day. to bed. <laughs> I want to go to bed, too. I have to get up in, like, seven hours. I still have to take a shower. Nah, showers are overrated. Uh, okay. So paraphrase. Okay. This is from Paul. Okay. All right. Dear Dr. Russell, <laughs> is running good or bad for your knees and back? There are many questions in this stream. So Yeah, so, I mean, the basic answer here is that running isn't necessarily bad for anything. But I did ask my friend who's, uh, you know, he's a, um, a sort of a 
therapist, uh, physical therapist. And he said that, you know, it's a great question in the sense that, yes, it can be bad for your back if you have bad form, if you're doing it wrong. Um, but if you have good form, it's not bad for your back. And of course, if you if you make sure to take good care of your core and do your stretching, you know, and, and run with good form, it, there's nothing that's going to hurt you unless there's some something pre-existing condition you know, where you have a, a slip disc or something, right? So running yeah, itself. So is if you bad. have a back problem, will running make it worse? Is yeah, the it, it it can. Yeah, and the so you need to get that fixed. But you can a lot of times they'll a good physical therapist or a chiropractor can give you ways to strengthen around the the problem, right? That's and what you PT can, is. And you can still keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Running doesn't cure it more. Yeah, so you just got to make sure there's not something, you know, just be smart. And remember, you're not a medical doctor. <laughs> I am not a medical doctor, <laughs> but you might be someday. One day, hopefully. All right, this is from Lewis. Two questions. Um, okay, the serious question. Ooh, this is long. Okay. So. Summarize. How do you decide what to do? And stick to it regularly so it becomes a routine because there are so many options, basically, is what he's asking. Yeah, so it's this is actually one of the most common questions, especially this time of year when people are trying to get into healthy routines. And it really, what it's come down to me, you know, it's a lot of, lot of different things to it, but you got to make it a habit so that it's just something that you do and you don't think about it. You know, sort of, sort of dishing, disengage your conscious brain and just make it a habit and prioritize um, put it at the top of your list. And the other thing is don't try to do too much, right? Because if you look at it's that list of things that you're supposed to do to be healthy, they'll be like, oh, you got to run, you got to do your core, you got to do your push-up, blah, 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 blah. you get this list. And before you know hours. it, yeah, there's just not enough hours <laughs> in a day. So I commit two hours a day. That's my commitment. And I schedule it, prioritize it, and I just do it. It's part of my habit. And when I look in, you know, the night before when I'm going through the next day's schedule or at the beginning of the week when I'm going through the week's schedule, or that day when I'm looking at here's what I have to do in that day, I slot it in, and I don't always hit it, but I hit it somewhere in there. Yeah. Right? And the other trick there is I, even though it's only maybe an hour or an hour 15 or an hour and a half worth of working out, I schedule two hours. Because there's this whole getting ready and, you know, finding Showering your stuff. After. Yeah. There's all that stuff. And people don't schedule that, and it gets them in trouble. Yeah. I think it helps, too find this time for it before you actually start doing it yeah schedule it because but that's just how my brain works anyhow yeah. though might just be us all right so this is the not so serious question also from lewis poetry or power tools poetry or power tools i'm i'm probably a poetry person yeah definitely i'm a little <laughs> effeminate yeah yeah the wife the wife's the power tool person <laughs> you get switched yeah so yeah i guess we we get on that road but let's not <laughs> All right, this one's from Larry. So, um, w what is the system that you use to successfully raise funds as a charity runner? Yeah, so I'm going to have to, you know, I could pretend that I'm good at that, but I'm not really. Uh, I just do it because I should do it. <laughs> and it's something else. And that's a good reason to, to try charity stuff because if you're not good at it you can learn to be good at it so you can challenge yourself um but the people who i've interviewed over the years who are charity people 
the common denominator is they work really hard at it. Yeah. And they ask everybody and they're fearless. Like they close 100%. They ask everybody <laughs> they know and they ask them multiple times and they're just relentless. <laughs> Anything else, right? After it's a while. it's just <laughs> it's just work. Uh, I have the great privilege to have sort of a built-in network in running, so I don't have to work as hard. So I, I'm actually cheating at that. You know, you can't really do that. <laughs> you can't be internet famous. Yeah, but I, I'm always thinking about it in the back of my mind, thinking of how can I, how can I do it, right? What can I and do? do that? It yeah. What can I do? Yeah. Right. Oh, and, and if you can get work involved, you're, you're where you work. A lot of times they'll do matching. Uh, that's big chunks of money there. Or like supermarkets. And yeah, stuff and the people like who the, the people who have to raise stuff like for that Pan Mass Challenge, they have to raise like seven to ten grand or something. Mm-hmm. They do parties. They have you know events. They have they do all this stuff. You know, casino night. I mean, it's like a full full on gig. Yeah. All right. So this is from James. When are you going to get yourself over to England for a race? Yeah, I like England. <laughs> You know, I've been there a few times. I've never been. You have to take me. Yeah, I worked. Go. I worked a project in the '90s where I was uh, in a hotel right outside of Kensington Park, and I was working at it was uh, an automobile plant, and we had to turn around a project, so we worked all day, and then uh, hung out in the pubs at night. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I could do that. You know, England's like New England. Ironically, amazing. Ar- ironically, in that everything's really close together when you look at it. It's like it's small. Yeah. Right? So you can get from you here to like there. You can like drive there. across it. And, and uh, I love hard. British history. I'm listening to a couple of different British history uh, things right now. So I always uh, am lecturing the kids on medieval uh, England. <laughs> medieval everything. Um, all right. So this is from Eric. He has a my friend Eric. Three. Um, so, running shoes should be removed from active duty after 300 to 500 miles. Fact or urban legend propagated by Big Shoe? So, yeah, I think, well, Eric, Eric, Eric's funny. He has, he has an entire closet full of hokas <laughs> that he bought. He, like, cleared the market out because he liked this one style and they stopped making it. So, he, like, cleared the market out. He, he cornered the market on this one style and size of hokas. He's um, just hoping to get more longevity out of this pile. So he has uh, shoes forever. And whenever he sees them, he buys more. But I find, you know, I am not... This is a, this is one area where my engineering brain doesn't take over. My sort of uh, English major brain takes over. And I just run and choose until my legs start to hurt. Yeah. And sometimes that's 500 miles. <laughs> sometimes that's 200 miles. Sometimes that's 1,000 miles with a pair of trail shoes. You can go forever in trail shoes because they never wear it's down. Squishy. Yeah. But a pair of road shoes, like right now, you know, I did, like I said, I did 20-something road miles in sub-30-degree weather. That beats the crap out of your shoes. So I've had these since October. I know because I bought them in October, and I'm only running one pair of shoes right now. Usually I run two or three pairs of shoes and sort of alternate. Um, but these, so at your 30 to 40 miles a week, right? So that's 120 miles a month. That's October, November, December, January. So we're getting close to 500 miles in yeah. those shoes. They're about ready to get turned. Wow. Yeah. That was so quick. We, we're, what I find is it... Um, it's always the knees. It's the knees first. My knees start getting sore. And then I know it's the shoes. Yeah. That's what happens to me, but it takes a lot longer. Yeah. Because I don't run as But if you have really good form, I know people who never change their shoes. They run the same shoes forever. 
just be nice. forever. Yeah. <laughs> it, but those are typically really light people. You know, I'm kind of a beefy guy, so don't carry around yeah. a lot. All right, next one. It's another uh, factor urban le- legend question. Uh, sitting is the new smoking. Factor urban legend propagated by IKEA and other stand-up desk ma- manufacturers. <laughs> That's how I try to be funny. I haven't I haven't used the stand-up desk yet, and I do sit my pretty intensely. Radio the boss of radiology has one. I've been Does in he? her office. How, does she like it? She loves it. She'll yeah. like stand up. She'll sit down. Like it's cool. Yeah. Also, yeah. the radiologists all have them because it's a very sitting profession. Huh. So they have them with yeah. all the computers. I suppose screens. I should get one and try it. I have a nice. You chair, have to though. get rid of your your amazing desk though. That's a nice desk. You I have, have a nice check desk and a nice chair. I got those on, out of the dot com bubble burst. <laughs> when all the all the dot com companies were selling their expensive chairs and desks, I got those for fifty bucks. <laughs> It looks nice, though. Like, it looks regal for Yeah, so I don't know. I'm going to have to try one of those standing desks out. Um, Because I definitely sit too much. Because what I'll find is when I'm working, I get into the zone, and then it'll be like four hours, and I won't move. Yeah. I think I sat down at one today, and then I, like, I went, like, walked to the printer, got back to my desk, and I was like, it's 4.30. I have to, I have to go. (laughs) Yeah, I did the same. The one thing you can do is you can set the alarm. So I use, if... You know, because you're on the... You're Pomodoro on, method? No, yeah, I use the Pomodoro, but I just go on YouTube yeah. or just Google. Just type into Google. Type in 30-minute type in timer. Yeah. And it will start a 30-minute timer. And then at least, you know, the, the theory is that at so the end of that 30 function. minutes, at the end of that 30 minutes, you give yourself some sort of break or reward. Yeah. You don't have to, but it's a nice way to say, oh, I just worked 30 minutes. And yeah. you can reset and do it again if you want to, if you're in the middle of something. But that's a good way to chunk things up. Yeah. I use that a lot, especially if I'm, if I'm having trouble focusing. I'll make tea. <laughs> Tea's good, yeah. That's, that's my breaking up my day, usually. Or I'll get water, and then I'll have to go to the bathroom. Yeah, well, <laughs> that breaks up your day. Exactly. All right, one more from Eric. Are there any negative issues associated with exercise-induced brachycardia besides getting rejected for life insurance? Is that how you pronounce that? Yes. Huh. It's tachycardia and brachycardia. Okay, I thought it would have been brachycardia. No, that's... Like brachiosaurus. It has a Y, one. Two, brachio is a different root. It means something entirely different. Huh. Brachy means slow. Ah. But brachia, bra- brachio is your is your uh, your uh, throat. Throat. Or, yeah. Something and like that. And then your arm Cardia. is brachia. Cardia is heart. Like if it was... Brachy, so, so it's your heart and your throat? No. <laughs> this one so, means slow heart. Slow That's heart. What it means. That's what it means. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. I got it. Life insurance, negative issues. Oh, okay. Like so that. the brachiosaur is a long-necked dinosaur. See? Yeah, exactly. See? There you so go. that's brachio, like I-O, yeah. and then brachia, like I-A is your arm. Huh. All right. <laughs> so anyhow, um, Eric's just mad because they denied him his insurance. <laughs> Because his heart rate was too low. I feel like that's a good thing. <laughs> and we all have that same problem. I have that same problem. Um, I went and got insurance one time the day after a 20-mile race, mm-hmm. and they told me I was having liver like liver function problems. Because Were you turning yellow? <laughs> no, because after a long race, you you your you your body has the same indicators, the blood indicators, yeah. as like alcoholism or liver freak, failure. Your body's like, yeah, your what body's, are you doing? Yeah, your body's <laughs> freaking out. But it's not doesn't mean you're unhealthy. Yeah. 
Right. So, yeah, we have a lot of those. So there is a solution now. Health IQ. Yeah, Health IQ. This is one of the companies. I'm sure there's more, but they basically do uh, insurance based on um, for healthy people. And you actually get a discount for being healthy. Which is even better because you get insurance and you get a discount. Right. But yes. Health IQ. Health IQ. Read about them. Okay, so this is from Dwayne. Uh, heart rate training. Um, does running strictly in a heart rate zone make planning difficult for like local roads? Oh, because of the distance? Yeah. Yeah, so you got to correlate the time and the distance. I had that problem tonight, right? So I'm trying to eyeball these routes to say, okay, I need an hour and a half. <laughs> I could end up miles from home. That's happened to you. <laughs> well, that always happens to me just because I'm a doofus. Not... I have to save you all the time. <laughs> so what she's talking about is I, I, a lot of these times I'll try, I'll try to do out and backs. And these step-up runs, they confuse me. <laughs> and so it'll be like an hour, hour and 30 step-up run. Mm-hmm. So it'll be like a 20-minute warm-up, you know, a 30-minute zone this, a 30-minute zone that. And I'll screw up the math and end up at, like, a half an hour past where I was supposed to turn around. Like sweating and out of breath, like dripping. And if I have my phone with me, I just call Teresa and say, come pick me up. I got lost. And then running. one time you called me and then I was like, all right, where are you? And you're like, nah, never mind. <laughs> Click. Okay. <laughs> I decided to tough it out. You got picked up. You were beca- decided to become a vagrant. I don't know. <laughs> I decided to tough it out. But tonight I tried to do a loop and I ended up five minutes short. So I had to run around the neighborhood for another five minutes. Um, so a lot of times I'll just do out and backs because out and backs are the easiest way to do it by time. So you just turn around at, if it's an hour and a half, you turn around at 45 minutes and head back the same way. Um, the only challenge with that is if it's a step-up run, typically the end of the step-up run, you're running faster. faster, not a lot faster, but like 30 seconds a mile faster. And what I found is if you add two minutes to the turnaround, it evens about right out. So if I'm doing an hour and 20-minute step-up run, um, instead of turning around at 40, I'll turn around at 42. And that evens out, right? Worst case is you got to walk. A, you know, a hundred yards at the end, which is okay. Yeah. All right. Well, it's nice for us because we have so many loops around our. Yeah, house. and then when I'm out, I'll just start measuring loops and seeing what takes what, and so I know some good, you know, two-hour loops, some good yeah. hour and whatever loops, right? So you time them, and you see what they come out with. And frankly, plus or minus five minutes, plus or minus ten minutes, is not going to kill you, right? Make and or break it's you. It, you're in the right place. I think you put this one, these ones twice. These ones have pictures, though. Those are Facebook ones. Yeah, no, but it's Larry and James, which are on this page, but oh. now they have faces, so oh. that's nice. Oh, so, I, so okay. is anything new there? Um, one more. Um, so in 25 words or less, why do you run and no superficial answers like it makes you feel better? 25 words or less is not enough words. He's very long-winded. <laughs> That's because I clearly you don't know it's him supposed well. to be it's supposed to be two hundred words or less. I was actually thinking about this tonight when I was listening to this guy talk about flow states, and I think one of the big reasons I run is because I have an addictive personality, and I love the um the chemicals that it produces in my in my brain when I run. I, frankly, I just think it makes me feel good. 
and I, I'm addicted to those <laughs> That's chemicals. That's what you said. Yeah. He said not to say that. Yeah. What? No, also, I mean... like, it makes you more productive and, like, energetic, and you're a jerk when you don't run, so... <laughs> <laughs> you're right, because of those happy chemicals. Yeah. It's the happy chemicals. I need the happy chemicals. Uh, and, the other, and I really do think it gets me into a flow state, because I can solve problems. Like, things just start clicking when I'm running. If I don't have the headphones in, like, the answers just about. come. Like, when I'm... If I have to write something... It will pop into my head fully formed while I'm writing, while I'm running, right? It'll write itself. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really a flow state for me, which is highly pleasurable. True. All right. I have three questions for you. You have three questions. These are Teresa questions. <laughs> They're weird because I thought of them at work and I was very loopy at the time. I've been doing the same thing for too many hours. Okay. So if you could be any animal, which would you choose? Hmm. I think I like the Border Collie. You'd still be able to run. Yeah. At least into your old age before your butt gave out. Yeah. Well, I always told Buddy, I, I said, there will come a time when you won't be able to run, and I will. <laughs> so enjoy it now, Buddy. <laughs> you can still run. Because I slowly. will dance on he your grave. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So this next one is, um, who is your favorite historical figure and why? Because I know you like history. Yeah. You know, I listen to a lot of history. And I'm trying to think. Oh, I think uh, probably Xenophon. Um, So, you know, and I've told this story before. Anybody who studied Latin knows this story. So this guy was a general. And a bunch of Greek mercenaries, like 10,000 of them, were hired by uh, Xerxes to go fight in what's now Persia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Not Persia anymore, but Well, that's you know, the Persian Empire yeah. there. Yeah, I forget what they're called. Maybe they were Hittites then, I don't know. They, you know, they change every now and then. This is a long time ago. That area, whatever. Yeah. And uh, and they ended up uh, killing all the generals in a bit of uh, skullduggery of the Greeks. Mm-hmm. So Xenophon just sort of became the new general. And these 10,000 Greek guys walked around all of that part of the world, and got back to Greece on their own. Weird. That's cool, though. With And they had, like, a 200,000-person army chasing them. And they couldn't... But they couldn't beat these guys because they were just so well-organized <laughs> and so good at what they did that they just... They walked, just ran away. They just walked home. <laughs> yeah. They were and like, yeah, I give so, up. <laughs> so read your Xenophon. All right. Last question. Um, running and the running world is full of many different people. What is something special or unique that you bring to the running world? That I bring? Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything special or unique. I mean, I think I have a a certain creativity that I can bring to it. So I'm not all about the bits and the bites of running because I'm just not that good at it. Um, But I have a passion for it and I do a good job of being able to build a bridge between that passion and communicating it in a in a way that is digestible by people, I think. And I think it's really my goal, right? Is to get people to put themselves in your shoes and feel that passion, feel that joy. Yeah. Good. Those are easy questions. Yeah, that's all the questions. So that I how do we do? You. How much time was that? So a quick follow up editorial note from Teresa that she meant bronchio, not brachio. And that brachio isn't a thing. It's brachia for your arm. So apparently a brachiosaurus means 
arm lizard <laughs> in Latin. So there you go. Something you can roll out at your next cocktail party. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Using LinkedIn, part one, telling your story, how to unlock the value of this business tool. Most people don't use LinkedIn well. They treat it as a place to store their resume. They treat it as an ancillary channel for their company's marketing. Mostly they just ignore it. I remember one time, an executive meeting I was in, not long ago, where the CEO started a conversation around what is this LinkedIn and how do we make sure our employees aren't giving away company secrets? And I had to hold my tongue because at that point I had 5,000 LinkedIn connections and had been an early adopter. I have close to 10,000 now. He was lumping LinkedIn in with Facebook and Twitter and all the other more social social medias. LinkedIn is social media, but it's business-centric social media. LinkedIn is not the place typically where you talk about your kid's baseball game unless you can somehow draw a business lesson from it. It's not a wasteland of cat videos and political strolling yet. LinkedIn is the place on the other side of the corporate wall where everyone has on their business clothes, their business avatars, and their business personas. This makes it different. This gives LinkedIn at least the blush of corporate authenticity. So why do you care about LinkedIn? Well, LinkedIn is a great opportunity for you to tell your story and your company's story. LinkedIn is a great place for you to do a bit of classic brand building. LinkedIn is a place to build a network in the true sense of the network effect and to share and find ideas. LinkedIn has also become the primary lead generation source for many relationship-based industries like recruiting. But you don't have to be selling or buying proactively. You can use LinkedIn as a subtle, content-based marketing platform to create inbound opportunities for you and or your business. The key here, like everything else in business, is to understand what you are trying to accomplish. Once you know what you want out of LinkedIn, you can craft an approach, a strategy, to incrementally build out that approach over time. That's the piece that most people miss. This is not a one-and-done approach. It's a consistent strategy that you work over the course of your career. This is more important in LinkedIn because you are building a network. And networks can be very powerful, but you need consistency and scale to gain the advantage of the network effect. So, start by understanding and telling your story. Today, I'm going to share with you how to get started by telling your own story well. This is the starting point. Most people skip this step. When you skip this step, you miss out on a tremendous opportunity to start the LinkedIn conversation on your own terms. Understanding and presenting your story is the classic strategy of choosing the good ground that everyone from Sun Tzu to von Clausewitz has recommended. Before you blunder into LinkedIn or start using it to broadcast marketing, take the time to understand your story and tell it in a compelling way. How do you do that? Well, step one, you have to find your story. 
And for people to connect with you, they have to know who you are and what you do and why. And the biggest challenge people have in creating their LinkedIn profile is getting the story right. Telling your own story is not easy. Seeing yourself from a third-party perspective requires introspection, investigation, and self-awareness. How do you do that? This works best if you can have a trusted advisor walk you through it. It is a basic interview process where you write down in detail from your earliest school days and progress through every role in your career and ask some questions. What was the role? How did you get into this role? Were you pulled into it by someone? What were the accomplishments you are most proud of in this role? Numbers are always good. What were the challenges in this role? How did you confront and overcome them? Who did you work with for in this role? What would they say about you? You want actual names because you will ask these people for endorsements and references at some point. And why did you leave this role? So obviously, it's not easy. It, this will take time. And you may have to go back and research certain roles and talk to people. As you go through this exercise, you will start to see patterns of success. You will learn about how you operate. Essentially, you should be able to discover the good stuff that makes you who you are. And this is the gold. And this process enables you to evolve from a stale list of roles to a fully fleshed out person. You will learn the important things. What drives you? Why have you been successful? And you will end up with concrete examples and stories for each attribute you uncover. Now, step two is creative writing. Now you take this treasure trove of who you are and what you have done, and you convert it to narrative form. You make it into the story of you, where you are the hero. And this is something that will take time and effort. You may spend days converting your notes to a narrative, but it's worth the effort. The creation process will allow you to internalize the attributes you have uncovered and rehearse the good stories that illustrate them. This is typically a challenge for the non-writers among us. You may not have the writing skills to do this, and it's okay to hire it out as long as you're involved in the process. Because this is as much about self-awareness as it is about the narrative creation. You should at least force yourself to create the first draft and then get help tarting it up from a pro. You'll save this narrative and make it a living document as you progress through your career. You make this narrative the piece that you lead with in interesting career opportunities. It will help you stand out from the crowd. It will frame the conversation that you want to have. Step three, load your story into LinkedIn. Now, instead of a boring resume-type LinkedIn profile, you will be telling your own powerful narrative. This is the baseline of your content in LinkedIn. This is the starting point. From here, you can build your network and build out your appropriate personal brand content and curation. The most important part of this is going to be what they see above the fold. And in previous versions of LinkedIn, they saw your picture, your name, your title, your company, and a summary. And LinkedIn has just recently changed what shows above the fold, and I'm sure they'll keep monkeying with it. But it still includes the first couple sentences of your summary. And you want to make sure that whatever is above the fold is compelling and is a part of your story. And people will check out your profile before they do anything else. Table stakes for this game are an interesting and powerful narrative. 
Make sure you, the real you, the interesting you, stands out in the first thing they see. And now that I have penned this piece, I realize I should probably go look and update my LinkedIn profile because, ironically, the first thing you're going to do is go look at it, so I've included it here. If you would like to see an example of my personal narrative or get some coaching on any of this, feel free to connect to me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email and uh, I'll help you out. All right. Thanks. Okay. Now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. All right, my friends. You have stepped up to the end of episode 4-358 of the Run Run Live podcast. Love you guys. Don't be afraid to send me questions or comments. I do love the interaction. I am right on track with my training for Boston, and I received my entry confirmation today, so it's real. Hopefully, we'll get good weather and I'll be able to let the dogs out. My nutrition has been super clean this week. It's been a good build week. I feel pretty good. I'll go out for an easy 7 or 8 with my buddies tomorrow and then 15 or 16 on Sunday. And as I promised, I skipped dairy this year and I'm not signing up for any of the spring races. I may decide to do Eastern States, but I'm trying to focus on my training and just keep it simple. I had two back-to-back hour and 30 runs this week. And I did them on a hilly course around my house over into the next town on the back roads. And we've got snow on the ground, and it's in the mid-20s, so it's it's full-on February here. And Tuesday, I couldn't get the run done until it was after dark. It was dark out. So I went out into the cold, quiet New England winter night. And it's really special in the winter at night when it's this cold out. It was a moonless night, and it was super quiet. And when it gets this cold, the air gets really dry and crisp. And all you can hear is the pat, pat, pat of your feet on the pavement and the sound of your own breathing. And even though there was no moon, because of the icy snow cover, the woods and the roads were lit up from the starlight. When it gets dry like this, the stars fight their way through the light pollution and stand out, and you can look up and see Orion the Hunter and the Big Dipper and Cassiopeia and the sparkling dust of the Milky Way, our home. So don't be afraid to get out and feel the cold air in your lungs and live the winter months with the verve and joie de vivre that I know you all possess, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought... That he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry And this means higher quality workouts and more intensity Oh, here's the dog, he wants to come in now He runs up the door and barks And then when I open the door to let him in, he runs away It's like, uh, you know, the kid's... uh, running up to the door and ringing the doorbell and running away. That's his game tonight. But uh, he's barking, so I'll go get him. Hold on. Hey. Come here. Come on. Hold up. Come on in. What are you, a cat?
Kids aren't home. My wife went to the cave. So he's bored. He's lonely. He's sad. He likes to interact. Okay, where was I?